and welcome to the third episode of the Mets Maniacs podcast. I'm your host, Ty Wilkes. Hope everybody had a great 4th of July, and everyone is as excited as I am for the 2020 MLB season. On this episode, we're going to cover the Mets 2019 season in review, because if you are like I am, you might be a little rusty on the season last year because it's been so long, literally the longest in my lifetime since we've actually had um, you know, a baseball season from the previous. So we'll be covering 2019 season in review. There's a lot that's happened since um, last year. So I'm going to give you a little uh, update on that. Um, but first, I just kind of want to keep you updated on some current events, some things I found interesting. So first and foremost, we're going to do a quick touch up on the bid for the Mets. Um, so this past Thursday was actually the deadline for opening offers for bidders. And here's how it turned out. So Steve Cohen is back as the front runner to buy the Mets. He bid $2 billion for the team and also $2 billion to acquire the rights to SNY. And this is kind of interesting because as you remember, back in February, he bid $2.6 billion for the team before that flopped in epic fashion. So uh, he's back as the front runner to to buy the Mets. Uh, In terms of the Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez bidding group, remember, as we discussed, this includes Mike Repoli as well as allegedly Dave Portnoy, among others, they put in a bid around $1.7 billion. Uh, Also, uh, apparently that's in the same range as the New Jersey Devils and Philadelphia 76 owners Josh Harris and David Blitzer. So um, sources as well confirmed that the Wellpons would actually prefer to sell the team to the J-Rod group if their offer is close to the best bid when the time comes. The relationship isn't the best between Cohen and the Wilpons. So... um, Again, you know, I'm, the Wilpons are looking to sell by the fall, so you know, hopefully we'll have new ownership soon. I'm just excited to have a new owner, and I think at this point, any change will be better than the Wilpons, so I'm just kind of excited to keep following this, see who owns the Mets. I could kind of go either way, whether it's Alex Rodriguez, Jennifer Lopez and company, or uh, Steve Cohen, so we'll see. I think the biggest thing for me is that we keep SNY together with Gary Cohen, Ron Darling, and Keith Hernandez. I've been watching them since I was a little kid. I think they're the best broadcasting group to ever broadcast a sport. A little self-bias included there, but still love the guys. I think they do a tremendous job. Uh, They also had to cover the Mets from 2010 uh, to 2014. So let's just give them credit for that because there was not a lot to talk about. So uh, they're great. I'll probably do an episode on them in the future. Um, But for right now, let's, let's get a little more into it. Another point. I want to talk about is the 2020 schedule. This has just been released. We have the Mets opening with the Atlanta Braves July 24th for 10 p.m. Eastern time. That should be a great game. A little different this year with the Braves. You have to remember that Nick Markakis is opting out of the season as well as Felix Hernandez. Freddie Freeman also had some symptoms of Corona. We don't know yet. I believe what's happening with that, but it's going to look a little different with some teams. Um, that being said, the Braves still won the division. That's something you have to keep in mind in 2019. I think that's overshadowed by the run that the Nationals went on to overtake the Astros, the underdog role that they played, which was admittedly still really great to watch, even as an in-division rival. That being said, I still don't like the Nationals. I think it's just my Mets bias and kind of the rivalry we've had over the last couple of years being more of the front runners in the division or the alleged front runners now with the Braves putting on a good team, uh, even the Phillies having a great team as well. But I think there's kind of been that Mets Nationals rivalry that's been the tightest among Mets fans, the most competitive. So even so, I still have a chip on my shoulder. I don't really like them, but I do appreciate the run they went on. But anyways, Got to look out for the Braves moving forward this year. The opening game should be very competitive. Even without those aforementioned players, we should have a very good game. And I do expect them to be very competitive this year in our division, which I think is the most competitive division in baseball. Even the Marlins have a great depth of young players. So as the season goes on and you get these long stretches of consecutive games, it's going to be important to delve into your bench, get new guys in, make sure that they can produce. Even last year, we had difficulty beating the Marlins. I think they do have a good team and they have potential, although I don't think they're going to be competitive for the playoffs this year. Anything could really happen during Corona season. We don't really know how the season's going to pan out, how outbreaks are going to go. So it is very possible that the Marlins can make a run 
it would be surprising to me, but it wouldn't be absolutely shocking to me. So we'll see how that goes. I think games with the Marlins are still going to be competitive. Anyway, so the Mets start against the Braves July 24th, and they actually have 30 games played in 31 days. So it's definitely going to be a haul for the Mets. They have one off day August 6th, and their next off day is not until August 24th. So this is definitely going to be a grind. This is where the depth comes into play. I think we have the depth this year. We'll see how players like Cespedes performs. I think we have very good players that can come off the bench, as we saw J.D. Davis could do that. Dominic Smith was a great pinch hitter. We'll get more into that later. Maybe Jed Lowry can return, if you remember who that is. But we'll see. Uh, Just two more things I wanted to note. One, we play the Yankees August 21st until the 23rd, a three-game series at home. Then we go to Miami, and then we go on the road against the Yankees August 28th through the end of August. So six games total against the Yankees. Everything else, as we previously talked about, we got 40 games against in-division rivals, and we have 20 games against our counterparts in the American League. So this will be interesting. I'm excited for the season to start, so we'll see what happens there. And then also, too, the Mets announced that they'll be doing a cutout program. A couple other Major League Baseball teams announced this as well. So right now, it only pertains to season ticket holders for 2020 who renew their season ticket holdings for 2021. Likely, it will open up to other fans as the season progresses. So we'll see what happens there. I personally love this idea, and I would love to have a cutout of me in the stands. Let's just see how price points go first, because... We're not making a lot of money on this podcast, but that's okay because we love doing it. I love everyone who listens in. appreciate the support. So maybe we can all get a cutout in the stands. We'll see how um, the Mets decide to to price that. Okay, so before I get into the Mets 2019 in review, one more thing I want to note is that Yo has returned to camp, and there's been a lot of buzz around him. There's been a recent video of him hitting a home run off Seth Lugo, He looks like he can hit. Again, it's been around two years he's been on the DL, so let's see what kind of impact he can make. A lot of the players are very bullish on Cespedes. I'd like to say let's wait and see. I don't know if he can run. He says he can play left field. You obviously can't ignore the fact that he will be a free agent after this season, so let's just see how that goes. But in my mind, any production out of Cespedes is a plus this year, even if he can't play the majority of the season. We get some good at-bats in, maybe some time in left field. I think that would be more than enough. I don't think it's actually that critical that we have Cespedes return to his 2015 form. I think our offense is really good. So if he does come back and provides any kind of positives, I think we're an especially scary team. But that being said, I think as the latter half of 2019 shows, we're a potent offense without you on a Cespedes. So I think we can remain confident regardless of what happens there. So before we get into 2019 in review, I just want to give you a little information on what makes this podcast possible and what platform I'm using to actually publish these podcasts. Okay, and let's jump back into the 2019 season in review, the primary content of this episode. So right here, I'm going to try my best to kind of explain the emotions of a Mets fan going into the 2019 in the preseason, how everything panned out how we ended the year, and just my general thoughts on everything in between there. So I will say, too, as a fan, this was the most exciting team I have watched besides the 2015 Tears of Joy campaign, obviously with Terry Collins. That was an incredible run, made it to the World Series. But this was the most resilient team I've seen, always fighting back, never say die Mets, as Gary Cohen would put it. I love watching this team. I love these players. I think they love the Mets. They seem to have a really good culture. The guys seem like they're really close. So it was just such a joy to watch the Mets progress through this 2019 season through adversity. So let me cover everything because there was a lot that happened, a lot that I even forgot before the season started. Uh, I want to let you know, too, that I'll be using an article for reference off AmazingAvenue.com. They're a great website, too, that follows the Mets. I wrote a fan post there back in the end of 2019 because I was so excited about the Mets. That kind of, you know, the 2019 Mets actually spurred at least myself writing about them, even creating this podcast as I was inspired by the runs they went on. And I really just, you know, love this team and I wanted to produce some type of content where I could explain that and, and have some kind of emotional outlet because it was just 
bubbling up inside of me. So hope you guys enjoy this. But if you want to check out the article, I put the link in the show notes. So you can check that out, kind of follow along or read it later at your own leisure. It's pretty detailed. I think it gives a really good overview of stats. There's a lot of detailed charts to show you where we were going into 2019 and kind of where momentum left us at the end of the season and what we can hopefully expect moving forward. So with that being said, I think to accurately cover the 2019 season, we need to rewind the clocks to 2018 and go to the 2019 preseason. So, you know, being a fan in the preseason 2019, you were pretty uncertain about the team. You were also optimistic, but that's how it is as Mets fans go. So I think first, the reason that the case for optimism started with our starting pitching. We had a starting lineup pitching-wise of Jacob deGrom, Zach Wheeler, Noah Syndergaard, Steven Matz, and Jason Vargas. So really here, Vargas was the only hole, as deGrom had a career year in 2018, won the Cy Young, obviously. He went 10-9 with a 1-7-0 ERA. And I'll say that again. He had 10 wins with a 1-7-0 ERA. Only possible on the Mets, but um, hopefully we can do better this year with a revamped lineup. So uh, Wheeler also rivaled deGrom down the stretch. He had that incredible 2018 post-All-Star break run. He finished the year with a 3-3-1 ERA. Noah Syndergaard had a 3-0-3 ERA. And even Matt's pitched to a sub-4 for a 3-9-7 ERA. So we had um, really just a, a tri-headed monster at the beginning of our rotation with DeGrom, Wheeler, and Syndergaard. And so we were really excited going into 2019. I think our pitching was a stronghold. And it's something that was more consistent that we could count on, which, again, has been our mantra for the past couple of years. But um, I, I do want to note, too, that in the first half of 2018, we had struggling pitching. We posted a National League worst 39-55 and 55 record over you know the pre-All-Star break in 2018. But then we had a resurgence in the second half, and we finished six in the NL with our record of 38-30 and 30 as our pitching got better. So that kind of showed how important our pitching was, how I think more accurately would be to say how heavily we relied on our pitching because our offense was anemic, which kind of has been the case for a while now. 2015, we had a better lineup, maybe even 2016 too, but nothing like our 06, 07 days, even 08. But anyways, so let's go to the 2019 preseason. We got in a bunch of new players, right, which gave us a lot of hope, a lot of optimism. We had three players who were all-stars in 2018 come to the Mets, right? You had Edwin Diaz, Jed Lowry, and Wilson Ramos. So they all came on the team, and then we got an eight-time proven all-star veteran who was an all-star as recently as 2017 in Robinson Cano. And then we also got some dude named J.D. Davis from the Astros. You were thinking, okay, maybe he can come on and hit left-handed pitching, as a pinch hitter, you weren't expecting a lot out of him. You know, he's probably just a placeholder until Yohannes Cespedes comes back because he's due at one point in the season, maybe after the All-Star break. <laughs> yeah, that was the plan back then. Yohannes Cespedes was going to come back in July. Obviously, we know what happened then. I'll cover in a bit. But, you know, looking at the 2019 season beforehand, you have a great rotation headlined with the previous year's Cy Young winner and Jacob deGrom. A legitimate offense whose best hitter is back at the All-Star break. You're thinking, okay, hopefully Ioannis can come back. Maybe the team's just roughly around 500. But as we saw in 2015, we can rely on his bat and our pitching to carry us the rest of the way into the playoffs, make another great run. I think that was on my mind. I think it was on a lot of other Mets fans' mind as well. But that did not happen. We'll get into it. We also had a closer in Edwin Diaz who saved 57 games last season and only blew four which is incredible. I know as a Mets fan, I have a lot of bad memories in my head of blown saves. So in my mind, I was very happy that we locked down a guy who seemingly was the answer to all of our problems in the bullpen, at least saving games. Although you have to give Jerry's Familia, Familia credit, obviously, being the Mets single season save leader up to this point. But Diaz seemed to be more of a generational talent, really young guy. We were really excited about his stuff. But Anyways, we even had really good offense, too. Uh, Rosario showed promise. Conforto almost hit 30 home runs in 2018. We had Jeff McNeil, who was you know, only played 63 games during the season, but he hit 329 in that stretch. 
which is incredible to see a Mets player hit over 300 for a season. And then you also had Brandon Nimmo, who had a great 2018 season. And his on-base percentage, I think, is a seldom-discussed fact, but I want to tell you right now the top five hitters for on-base percentage in 2018, the leaders here. So here are the names. You have Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, Joey Votto at third, Brandon Nimmo at fourth, Christian Yelich at fifth. So those names, these are all MVP candidates. Votto year after year has a great on-base percentage. Nimmo had a 404 on-base percentage in 2018. Great leadoff hitter. So I'll get into that next episode too, why I think he should still be leading off going into the 2020 season. But we'll cover that in the next episode. So anyways, yeah, you had a great offense, a great rotation. You think that you could really pull this together. Hopefully Cano comes in. Maybe he can have a, you know, a great season at the end of his career, kind of like David Ortiz and Nelson Cruz, who produced great numbers from their mid-30s onwards. So, you know, I was optimistic going into the season. I think we had a lot of tools to win. I think we could, honestly, at the beginning of the year, I think we could win the division, not just be a wild card candidate. So that was my expectation going in. When the season started, it was just horrendous. Nothing could make this team click. We came out hitting strong, but our poor pitching proved stronger, right? We had Jacob deGrom, who was inconsistent. He lost three games in a row at one point. Everybody looked a lot of sorts. Noah Syndergaard looked baffled. Wheeler couldn't get it together. Honestly, Jason Vargas in the early goings of the 2019 season was our most consistent starter, which was startling and very, very deflating for me as a Mets fan and worrying moving forward. And also, too, this is a fact that is kind of tough to bring up, but to force it back into your memory, I apologize. But if you remember the bullpen in 2019, it was simply horrifying for the first half of 2019. We had a MLB leading 22 blown saves by the end of June. And whenever we turn to the bullpen with a short lead, or not even a short lead, as I'll touch on, I had palpable anxiety. I remember watching Diaz and Familia come into games, and I couldn't even watch. I had to check highlights on my phone because it just killed me. It seemed like every count was 3-2 or walks, and it was just a horrible experience, to be honest, watching them pitch, especially with what happened with Diaz, who came in at the beginning of the year, and you saw his stuff, and it really just didn't make sense to me how this guy was getting rocked for home runs and blowing save after save. It was very tough. We um, had a terrible stretch, if you remember, from May 27th to June 27th of 2019, where we blew leads in epic fashion over these 10-game stretch, the worst of which came on May 29th. We led the Dodgers 8-5, to entering the ninth inning. Diaz came in, four runs came out, and we suffered to that point in the season the most devastating and morally deflating loss. So, And again, this was at this point. There was, there was a worse scenario, which I'll bring up later which I'm sure as a Mets fan, you'll remember, you probably blocked it out of your memory, as I actually did before I did some research before I started this podcast, because, you know, it just hurt that much. So on June 28th, we lost our sixth consecutive game in 2019, and had a 37 and 46 record. So we were nine games below 500 at this point. So we were in tough shape. We got swept by the Marlins in a three game series. And somewhere around this time, we had just terrible news that Ioannis Cespedes, who was dual, due back from his you know, uh, surgeries on both of his heels, he was going to be due um, back shortly after the All-Star break in July. We learned that he like fell off a horse or maybe into a hole. We didn't know at the time, as we do now, that it was a wild boar incident. And he violently fractured both his ankles in the most Mets injury that you could imagine that this guy, our best hitter, highest paid player due back into July, hopefully can carry us into the postseason, essentially falls into a hole is the news we got. Fractures both his ankles out indefinitely for the 2019 season and probably most of 2020. So that was um, a horrible blow considering what happened to that point where a team below 500, severely underperforming. And you got Nimmo, who was sent to the injury list, and he was due back. And then we learned that he had like a neck issue that was going to keep him out maybe into the fall, which is what ended up happening. So we just get hit in tandem with horrible news. You, you also have to keep in mind that Jed Lowry, that 
you know, all-star I mentioned earlier, just didn't play for the Mets, just a name who has continually been injured. And I don't really hold anything against these players, although Cespedes, I'm still a little angry at, even though he carried us in 2015. So I appreciate him. It was just so crushing as a Mets fan to have him be out in that manner, in a way that seemed preventable. Obviously, I don't know what happened, but I don't know. Just It's just such a wacky, crazy injury. Just... It, it reminded me of when Pedro Feliciano for the Mets, that reliever, if you remember, got injured. I believe he was holding a pizza box in a taxi or driving and hurt his arm and got injured and, and pushed him on the disabled list at a time that was critical for the Mets. You know, it's just another wacky injury in some bizarre sense that kind of, you know, made the Mets like a laughing stock of the MLB. Just some crazy event happening. So it just it just hurt and it just reinforced our stereotypes. So, um, but we'll see if Cespedes can come back. You can earn back my faith and respect. I'll just keep on taking swings. Hopefully, you can run. But anyways, also if you remember, there was that whole drama with Robinson Cano where he wasn't running out double play balls. And I really haven't forgiven Cano for this either. I like the players who work really hard. And I'm not saying Cano doesn't work hard. Perhaps he's trying to prevent injury. This is my own personal opinion. I think Cano has a um, bad case of like a cool guy symptom player, the way he fields. Yes, it's very smooth. It's People criticize it as lazy. I honestly think he's just trying to look smooth out there. Might be an unpopular opinion. This is what I think. He doesn't show hustle. Look, if you play for the Mets, if I was on the Mets, right, let's start there. I would give everything and more, busting out every hit I have to show my appreciation to be on the team and to show how much I want to win. And that's something a player like Brandon Nimmo does, always hustling, even on home runs, which is hilarious. You have to love the guy. But Pete Alonzo, Jeff McNeil, Conforto, these guys put in work. They're running the bases. Again, we don't know exactly what happened with running out those balls, but I didn't really like his answer either. So he still has a lot to prove to me. Maybe he is a veteran leader in the clubhouse. We don't know what is said behind closed doors, but I want to show a little more, see a little more work from Cano, even if he had that kind of rebound at the end of 2019, which helped our season. Just the lack of hustle to me is kind of just saddening and frustrating to see as a fan. It's not what we want our team to be about. It's not the culture we want. Luckily, it doesn't seem to have spread to everybody. It's really just isolated in Cano. So we'll see, though. Maybe he'll take off this year, have a great season, prove me wrong. So that's just how I felt as a Mets fan at the time, too. When emotions were high and he wasn't running out ground balls, I wanted him benched. And I think he even batted too high. I think his status is Robbie Cano. I don't think still he's a three or four hitter. I don't think Mickey Calloway honestly had the guts to bat him lower out of respect for Cano. I think that's crazy. We should have our lineup set where our best players are best situated to win us ballgames. And Robbie Cano, even this year, batting 3-4-5, I think is just incorrect. I think Jeff McNeil, Pete Alonzo, and Michael Conforto are better hitters than him. We'll see what Cespedes can do when he comes back. Even J.D. Davis seemed a better hitter than Robbie Cano for most of the season. So we'll see where they bat Cano. Again, I'll be releasing lineups next week. I probably put him lower more 7th, 8th, but we'll get to that. But anyways, so this was the midpoint of the season, right? You had all this stuff going on. Cespedes out, Nimmo's out, Lowry's not playing. Cespedes isn't running. And then you had that one incident with Mickey Calloway and Jason Vargas, if you remember. And Vargas had to be restrained from an altercation from a beat writer in June. And I'm just laughing now because I'm just remembering this, but um, that kind of just showed how high emotions were running where we had players on the Mets screaming at beat reporters. So we were we were in a bad spot for sure. And it, it doesn't help, you know, with, with the offseason hype coming in with all these new acquisitions and us completely flopping. So this wasn't even being an overly cynical Mets fan as sometimes I can be. This was just the reality of the situation. So at this point, you know, I was looking forward in my mind to 2020 because I was like, this season is a wash. This is terrible. I can't watch this. So that's just where our heads were at. So let's get into some stats here at the end of 20, 
19 or the sorry the midway point in 2019 the end of the first half of the season this is how we ranked in runs as well as team era so runs in the national league you had the mets in 10th place with 420 runs scored their era hit them at 13th place in the nl at a 486 era team era right the only worst teams were the pittsburgh pirates and the colorado rockies um so tough company especially the rockies pitching at their stadium how the ball flies there in such a hitter's park we were essentially second to last in my book so we finished 10th in run scored 13 team era so that's exactly what 40 and 50 looks like 10 games under 500 we had terrible morale you know, you thought the team was going to sell Syndergaard or Zach Wheeler. Their names were being thrown around. You were kind of worrying as a Mets fan that, are we going to start some kind of rebuild? What's the future going to look like? It was very concerning. Then something pretty improbable happened in my book. I think a lot of other Mets fans were surprised as well that we got Marcus Stroman from the Blue Jays. And to that point, he posted a 2.96 ERA for the Blue Jays through 21 starts that year. I remember uh, assuming we gave up Dominic Smith or another talented player who was major league proven to acquire this guy, but we actually just gave up our number four and six prospects, which were both pitchers. And this is significant, but both of these players have been struggling recently, and obviously it's difficult to predict the success of a lot of prospects at the big league level. You just don't know. So I was in favor of this move. Um, I was on Brony Van Wagen's good side here. I think he did a great job getting in Stroman because it kind of showed the team. It gave that morale boost like, hey, we've had a horrible first half, but we're still here to win. And even moving forward for 2020, I think it let the team know that, okay, in the future, we're in win-now mode. We're not going to rebuild. I think this kind of added to the cohesion of the team that we're going to stay together, this core, and really just kind of improve the culture and the attitude of the players. So I think that was great. So with that being said, let's get to the fun part of the podcast here, the positive part, which was the second half of the 2019 season post-All-Star break, which was absolute madness. It's hard to chronologize it, so let me just touch on the highlights here. This was, again, probably the most fun I've had watching baseball since the 2015 season campaign. It was just incredible watching the Mets play. The run they went on was so exciting. And even though we fell short... It gave me a lot of hope moving forward, and it made me really proud to be a Mets fan. So let's just touch on a couple of the highlights here. So we won 15 of 16 games in a stretch from late July to early August. So the series that concluded this run included two of the more iconic Mets games that I've ever seen. They were against the Washington Nationals, the first of which was the opening game on August 9th at Citi Field which featured the Mets facing a three-run deficit in a 6-3 ball game. Going into the bottom of the ninth, Todd Frazier up to bat, runners, I believe, on first and third, and he hits a home run off Sean Doolittle right down the left field line, barely stayed fair, ties the game 6-6. I was absolutely speechless, jaw dropped, could not believe it. I remember when our offense was so bad before this year, knowing that if the Mets were down two runs, basically the game was over. It kind of went both ways, too, because the pitching was so good. So if we were up two runs, you would think that, okay, we have this game secured, obviously bearing the bullpen's performance, but uh, we didn't we didn't come back from ballgames. This was not a team that could come up once they were down in the dirt. If you remember, the 2015 Mets went on that great 11-game winning streak very early in the season, and this reminded me of that team. Just the never-say-die Mets keep coming back. It reminded me of when Murphy hit that home run against the Braves. I don't know if any of you remember that home run, but we were down in the ninth. I think he hit a three-run homer in similar fashion to tie the game, and we ended up winning that one here. Uh, luckily, the outcome was the same. We had Michael Conforto get up to the plate. He had that two-out walk-off double to right fields over Adam Eaton, and it's just that was our seventh straight win at the time. Pete Alonso came out. Everyone was obviously so excited, ripped off Conforto's shirt. It was awesome. And whenever Gary Cohen calls a walk-off win for the Mets, I just get this surge of elation and happiness and adrenaline and euphoria. I can't even explain it. It's it's incredible. So just hearing him alone get excited calling that call um, is something truly amazing. I still get goosebumps when I look back at those highlights which I definitely have way too often 
in the past couple of months uh, without it. So that's incredible, right? The very next game, we're down 3-2 to the Nationals in the bottom of the eighth when none other than Luis Guillorme steps up to the plate. Luis Guillorme off Fernando Rodney on a 3-2 pitch hits his first career home run to give the Mets the lead in his 100th career MLB at bat. This is a guy who in 2018 batted 209, comes up to the plate, rips this home run to tie the game. I was going bananas at this point. Just a fairy tale story. And I'll love Luis Guillorme forever for this. And again, he's a defensive specialist. He's definitely a resource to have on the team. We'll see him this year. But to hit a home run like that in that fashion, to be your first career home run, was incredible. So, yeah. Just incredible. No words. No words. Right. Tie the game. Then you have J.D. Davis come over to give the Mets the lead. He also hit a home run earlier in the game. The originally platoon-bound J.D. Davis, right, comes up, and he had such a great year for us, emerging, I think, as, like, one of the leaders on the team, a bedrock of the team. So, really just incredible turn of events for 2019, especially post-All-Star break. So, we win this game. We're the officially the hottest team in baseball. We just won our eighth straight. Now we improved to 21-6 and six since the All-Star break. So incredibly astounding to me that this team that was once 11 games under 500 I included them to be down and out as I mentioned before to pull back like this and to keep fighting was truly incredible and this is what made me bind to the Mets so hard especially for 2020 on this roster to show how much these guys care and how much these guys are willing to fight and never just give up a game it really makes me bullish on them and support them to hopefully ride that momentum they had at the end of 2019 back into 2020. So it, it kind of shook up that dogmatic, wishful thinking that, you know, it's usually married to a Mets offseason, right? You're always like, oh, well, next year maybe we can be better. And then the same thing happens and it's just kind of rinse and repeat. But I truly think this group of players is showing a different kind of attitude on the Mets which I love, and it's so exciting to watch as a fan because truly anything can happen, and these guys are never down and out. So, again, even though we didn't quite pull it off, we finished 86 and 76 on the season. That was good for sixth place in the National League. And if the Nationals didn't also go on an epic run, we probably would have won the wild card coming in at 2019. So, that's incredible to see where this team was originally at. And how much faith you lost in the team to see where they ended up was was truly remarkable. So, um, in other words, the team was 13th in the NL at the All Star break, right? Post All Star break, we post a 46 and 26 record through the end of the year. As I said, sixth best team in the National League. We saw generational talent in Pete Alonso, who wasn't even expected to be on the starting roster right before his incredible spring training hit a record-breaking 53 home runs. He won the Home Run Derby and obviously the Rookie of the Year award, which sometimes gets washed away. Just, you know, it's just, you got to remember everything that happened with all the craziness of 2020 season. But we also witnessed Jacob deGrom, unsurprisingly, but again, incredible. Over that stretch, post-All-Star break, pitched to a 7-1 win-loss, 1-4-4 ERA, and a .83 whip, which all but secured his position for a consecutive Cy Young award title. So let's look at this from a team perspective. Just want to give you a few stats to show how we ranked. So uh, in terms of wins, we were second in the NL. We had the Dodgers first with 47. Or sorry, the Cardinals had 47 first. And then the Dodgers, Nats, and Mets were tied with 46 wins. And then technically we had the second best win-loss ratio in the league, only second to the Dodgers. So we had just an incredible second half. Nobody expected the Mets to be up with names like the Dodgers and the Cardinals. Even the Nationals, who started off very slow, their team on paper at the time seemed more of a confirmed concrete team that you expected them to do really well. There was just a lot of question marks with the Mets, especially given the circumstances of what happened with Lowry not playing, Diaz completely pitching terribly. Same thing with Familia. And just to touch on them real quick too, Familia, who was a great pitcher for us, in 2019 posted a 5-7 ERA, right? Edwin Diaz, again, we know the season he had in 2018, posts a 5-5-9 ERA, right? So 
with the spearheads really of our bullpen, and then Lugo had an incredible season, but with Diaz and Familia, incredibly talented relievers, which in my opinion, I still think they are, having terrible years, have all those other guys out, the morale of the team just plummeting, right? And to still finish with this record, I think it's just truly remarkable. So it's just something to keep in mind. And then team ERA here as well. We finished third in the National League with a 3-4-8 ERA. The Dodgers were first with a 3-3-7. And the Cardinals came in second with a 3-3-9. So you could kind of see our pitching and our win and loss very closely correlated, as they are for all teams, right? These are the same teams up top, essentially. Um, you know, that that's just kind of how it goes. But we had an incredible second half. And then I'd like to also note on the individual records um, for the Mets, we had Jacob deGrom for the year, right? He finished 2-4-3, but down the stretch, like I said, he pitched a, a 1-5-1 ERA, um, which is incredible, or at 1-4-4, sorry, before. Um, also, Noah Syndergaard, he picked it up. He didn't have a really good year, right? He pitched to a 4-2-8 ERA in total. He was a little off. Again, there was some, you know, the whole controversy with balls flying out of the ballpark, records in home runs being broken, like total for the MLB season. I think he was kind of a victim of that as well, but he definitely underperformed. But I will say that he had a better second half pitching to a 4-4 win loss with a 3-8-2 ERA. He also had that great game against the Reds where he pitched a complete game shutout and had the only run on the Mets team with a home run. So he completely carried us that game. That was extraordinary. We had Stroman come on, and in the few games he started for the Mets, he went 4-2 and two with the 3-7-7 ERA. He started 11 games. So he pitched well. Wheeler pitched well. Mats had a 3-4-9 ERA in 14 games started. He had a lot of difficulties beginning of the year in the first inning, getting out of that. He's been a little shaky, too. You don't really know how he's going to be this year. But he's a guy that you think can pitch a sub-3-5 ERA because he definitely has the raw talent to do so. You're just hoping he can get it together for the 2020 season when we need him really desperately, I think, this year. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. But you know, at least he, he ended the season on more or less a good note in the second half. So that's great. Here's a very interesting stat, too, in terms of the bullpen. Now, as I mentioned in 2019, that was a major pain point for the Mets was how bad their bullpen was. But what's really interesting, I did some digging, and in 2019 post-star star break, the Mets had the best save opportunity percentage for National League, right? So this is just your save opportunities and how many blown saves you've had. And we had 23 save opportunities and only blew six, which gave us a National League leading 73.91 save percentage. So that was above the Braves, above the Cardinals. I didn't think this was remotely possible. And if you told me this in the beginning of 2019, that we would have the best save percentage in the second half of the season, I would have laughed you right out of wherever you were sitting. This is something that I couldn't even comprehend. If you remember, too, at the time, and here's where I'll bring it up, where Lugo, sorry, no, Diaz was pitching against the Nationals. We were up 10-4 to going into the bottom of the ninth. 10 to 4. We had 10 runs. The Nationals had 4. And Diaz blew the save. It was the worst loss I remember as a Mets fan. It was so demoralizing against the Nationals nonetheless. And seeing them celebrating after a horrible another blown save from our supposedly best closer in the league in Edwin Diaz was just too much for me to take. I remember actually sitting separately after that game alone in my room thinking that I need to reevaluate my emotional connection with the Mets because it was affecting my personal life <laughs> too much after that after that loss luckily they had that bounce back so here I am again uh, emotions fully tied with the Mets we'll see how long um, that that lasts I think it will for the rest of my life better or worse so for my health's sake let's hope the Mets can put on a show in 2020 and remain successful but Anyways, so you had the Mets leading in save percentage. Incredible. And this is, I think, most of the credit here, unsurprisingly so, is due to Seth Lugo. In his last 15 appearances, he had 22 innings pitched. He pitched to a .82 ERA 
29 strikeouts, two walks, and a 0.59 whip. So there's every reason to believe that Lugo will carry the success into the 2020 season. I think he's great. Again, I think Diaz and Familia should be able to reciprocate their success of the past. These are both all-star pitchers. Diaz is second in the major leagues of all time for single-season saves. He had 57 back in 2018, only trailing Francisco Rodriguez when he had 62 saves. So he has that record. Familia has the record for the Mets. These are really good pitchers who just both happen to have terrible years, like shockingly very bad years, not just relative to their previous success, just standalone as a reliever, horrible years. So let's hope they can bounce back. If they do, I think that'll be great. Obviously, we added Batances. Again, I'll get into the roster additions and kind of the current roster in the next episode. But for highlights of our offense, let's jump there. Team-wise, we finished third in the NL, team-wise, and runs scored. We tied with the Cardinals, actually, for third with 371 runs, which was great. We tied for second in home runs, third in hits, third in average, and third in OPS. So you had that top of the league uh, pitching for ERA top of the league hitting, you finish in top of the league runs. Very easy formula. Let's just see if we can repeat. I want to do um, a quick touch-up on our offense for individual players. Uh, Ahmed Rosario broke out in the second half. So did Wilson Ramos, I think. He was, you know, hitting pretty well in the first half of the season, but second half, he really surprised me as well. He's definitely solid with the bat, and to have him as a seventh or eighth hitter, I think, is incredible. I still think we have one of the best offenses in the National League. But anyways, in the second half, we had three hitters rank in the top 15 for the National League batting average. In J.D. Davis, he hit 335, which was good for fourth. Ahmed Rosario hit 319, good for 10th. And Wilson Ramos hit 305, which was good for 15th. So you had guys raking in the second half. We also displayed an impressive amount of power. Stemming from Alonzo, obviously, he hit 23 home runs to finish second. I think he did sacrifice some um, contact. And his average, just chasing that home run record, which he got. And by the time the Mets were already out, I think it was okay for him just to swing more for home runs, which I'm glad he did. He broke the record. So I expect his average to increase some points going into 2020. Um, We had Conforto hit 17 home runs in the second half. That was tied for 11th. And then kind of surprisingly, Jeff McNeil hit 16 home runs in the second half of the season. It's good to tie him for 17th in the NL for home runs. So... Again, his average took a dip as well. He still finished, I think, a 318 hitter. So uh, still great. I'll make an argument for him to bat third, as I think he has uh, the kind of stuff that Anthony Rendon has on the Nationals. I think he could drive in a ton of runs, making a ton of contact. And he also has some power that he flashed here too. So I think he can pull both together, be uh, above 300 hitter, and hit over 20 home runs, which I think is exactly what you want for your third hitter. So we'll get into that later, but um, we really took lethal form in the second half. We were a dangerous team. I'll tell you some slash lines right now. I have these charts up again on that article if you want to look through them. Really interesting. I kind of go a little deeper than most other articles. I like to break it down between first half and second half uh, to get you kind of keyed in on this momentum shift to see how these players were trending at the end of the season. So notable slash lines, uh, Ahmed Rosario, um, he... Had six home runs, 30 RBIs in the second half of the year. Uh, He did really well. We had uh, Conforto hitting 17 home runs, 48 RBIs. Um, Jeff McNeil, like I said, hitting 16. J.D. Davis with his average 335, which was very impressive. Uh, Ahmed Rosario hit 319. Again, Conforto hit 271. So that was better, honestly, than his average. I'm still expecting that to increase. He seemed to be hovering around like 250, 260, even upper 240. I think he can be a 270 plus hitter, even 280 plus. I think he's good enough. I'm just hoping that this year he can really get it together. So we had a lot of players contribute. Even Cano hit 284, nine home runs, 21 RBIs, OBP of 339. So he definitely performed great in the second half. He went on a run there. He definitely produced. Um, We'll see if he can carry that out into the 2020 season. I think he'll be able to produce at least a little bit. Again, I don't think it merits him batting third or fourth. We'll see 
what Luis Rojas, Rojas sorry, uh, plans to do with Cano, but I'm hoping we bat him according not to his legacy, but his current performance capabilities. We'll see what happens with that. And I want to touch on Brandon Nimmo, who came back. He only had 69 at-bats, but his on-base percentage was 430. He hit 261, OBP 430. But again, I think, like I noted in the beginning of the podcast, in his 2018 season, his OBP, very high over 400. The fact that he could still manage to get on base 43% of the time is incredible. I think that he deserves the leadoff spot going into 2020. We'll see what the Mets do. But I think he can continue that success as he shows repeated ability to get on base, which is really what the Mets need. And then you have contact guys beneath him in Rosario McNeil, who can really drive him in. Nimmo still has the speed to get around the bases on a double. He could score from first. So I think he's kind of a no-brainer in my book to bat first. But anyways, I remember, and this is cool because the majority of these players, you know, are homegrown. I remember being envious of the tremendous farm systems and the success of the Red Sox, Yankees, and the Astros that so greatly contributed to their respective regular and postseason successes, and more importantly, their probability of sustained success. Rather than just getting free agents to rent players to win one year or two years, you have this team being built up from the foundation with the capability to keep winning. But perhaps rather quietly, the Mets have built up an impressive array of their own homegrown players. You have... DeGrom, Mats. I would even count Wheeler and Syndergaard, even though they came to our team via trades. We still, both of them debuted in Flushing. Uh, we still coached them, I think, nurtured them, nurtured their talent. I still consider them more Mets homegrown, but if you want to go true Mets homegrown too, let's do that. We got McNeil, Alonzo, Conforto, Rosario, and Nimmo. And Nimmo, I guess you can make an argument. We'll see how he'll perform this year, but the other four are definitely the bedrock of this team. You got Dom Smith, who showed great promise and potential, especially coming off the bench. I think he's a great player. Great attitude, too. Love the guy. And even J.D. Davis, I would include on the list. He came over from the Astros. Kind of frightening, considering their youth success. But who knows how much of that you know relies on their sign-stealing scandal. I guess we'll see this year. I do think those players are talented, too. But it is hard to ignore the possibility that their stats are inflated from that scandal. But anyways... I kind of include him on our list of homegrown players because he really blossomed on this team, not on the Astros. So our core, and these guys are young, our core of homegrown, young, and talented players is a great formula for franchise success. So I'm really excited looking forward to 2020 and beyond to see what this team is capable of. I think we are a fearsome team, great lineup. We'll see how our pitching rotation does this year. We'll talk about all that more in the next episode but that you know in terms of our lineup offensively you got to be excited as a Mets fan if you remember what this team was doing a couple years back when we had John Mayberry Jr. and Eric Campbell in our starting lineups I remember a stretch when Eric Campbell was our cleanup hitter so it's just really great to see how far this team has come to put actually you know, in no disrespect to Eric Campbell, I think he filled in great for the Mets at the time, but he's not a cleanup hitter by any stretch of the imagination. And now that you have a guy who had 53 home runs batting cleanup, it is quite the upgrade to say the least. So uh, definitely interesting to watch. And again, I think most importantly and astoundingly, it's great to note how dangerous we were without the top paid unequivocally at the beginning of the 2019 season, at least unequivocally most powerful offensive force Entering the 2019 season was Ioannis Cespedes. And the fact that we could have the third best offense in the National League by metric of run scored, right, in the second half of the 2019 is incredible. So I think we have a lot to you know point to for optimism for this team, a lot of reason to believe that we can replicate the success of our offense in 2019 in this shortened season in 2020. And also, I just want to mention one last thing, too. As I was looking up highlights for the Mets, just to get myself pumped up, I recommend you do the same. I think a couple things I forgot. We had that great win against the Indians. Of course, the one walk-off win we had when we were down 3-2, somebody hit a ground ball, and nobody was covering. It was first and third we had, bottom of the ninth. On the Indians, the pitcher forgot to cover first, so we tied the game 3-3. And then we capitalized. J.D. Davis hit a walk-off double to left field. 
that was an incredible win too. That was in, in the, the hype of our winning streak. Another just incredible game to watch. Just so exciting as a Mets fan. And then even after we weren't going to make the playoffs, the last game of the season, down three runs to the Braves, bottom of the ninth, Dom Smith makes his debut back from the DL. And in his first at-bat back, hits a three-run homer to walk off the season. You can't really end it on a better note. You can see that Dom Smith's beloved in the clubhouse. He has a great attitude. Uh, he loves playing on the team. It seems like you know he loves everybody else as well. So it was just really special to see him get that home run. I think he deserves it. Um, it was just really cool to watch to end the season there. So that makes me very hopeful moving forward. Let's see what we can do. You know, coming from a team that's had so much disappointment and having people like Matt Harvey lose it, David Wright's career end prematurely. Like I mentioned, Murphy and Justin Turner, they go on to have MVP caliber seasons only after leaving the Mets. Cespedes fell into a hole or had the wild boar incident, whatever. All the pain points of the 2019 season to finish in that fashion, you know, and to come up with new roster additions, a new look to the team, a definite win now attitude I think it's going to be incredible to watch for the 2020 season I think no matter what happens they're going to be worth a watch every night I know I'll be watching them a lot I'll be for you guys I'll keep posting these podcasts so you can look forward to that so that's all I really wanted to cover hope you guys have a great week and we're just counting down the days to the season start July 24th it'll be a ton of fun Let's go Mets. Let's see what we can do. And then as always, keep posted for next week. I'll be dropping another episode for the 2020 editions on the roster, as well as some predictions for our lineup for win-losses across the NL as well. Maybe I'll even do postseason, and we'll see how that'll pander out. So again, thanks for listening. You guys are great. Appreciate all the support. Love you guys. Love that you guys love the Mets. And lastly, if you want to get in touch with us, again, right now we're just running off email, so you can send an email into wearemetsmaniacs at gmail.com. That's W-E-A-R-E, metsmaniacs at gmail.com. All right, guys, hope you have a great week. Take care.